Before we start the show, I'd like to tell you a little bit about the training courses that we run here at Masters of Motion. We run one-day workshops in Melbourne and Sydney called How to Get a Job, which explain to you the marketing techniques that are required to get your next dream job. I also run a multi-week course where you'll develop a personal brand and improve your portfolio and showreel and learn the essential sales and marketing skills to market and sell your work as a creative professional. This runs in person in inner city Melbourne and we also have an online course as well. The next workshops and courses start soon. So if you're interested in increasing your marketing and sales skills and getting a better job or freelance project, check out mastersofmotion.com.au forward slash learn. Alrighty, let's get into the show. My name's Matthew Packwood, and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation, and visual effects artists. Today, I'll be talking to the award-winning creative director, Darren Price, from the animation studio, Mighty Nice. In the early 2000s, Darren played a key role in setting up the Nexus Animation Studios in London, building it from a small boutique studio to an animation powerhouse. He then returned home to Sydney to set up Mighty Nice, which over the last 10 years has gone on to create some amazing commercials and two television series for kids. Darren is a BAFTA award-winning director and a well-respected studio owner. Thanks very much for taking the time to chat with us today, Darren. No worries, Matt. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be a master of motion or at least considered one. It's very cool. What are the important things people should know before setting up their own studio? Get a good idea of the market. I guess it's very competitive out there. Yep. There's a lot of studios. There's guys in bedrooms competing for the same work that you're planned big studio might be competing for. It's important to know where you fit in. Yep and where you want to be. So, you know, look at what all the other studios are offering and try to focus on what makes you different or, or interesting. You know, what, what are you selling? Yeah. Also know that you are starting out and just to be quite humble in the way you approach it, there's a lot of freedom. You're, you, you don't have anything to lose. It's quite fun. So get out there and meet people. Treat it like it is a fun adventure that you're going on. Like early on, you don't have to hit big sales targets or have any like quotas that you need to hit. Do you find that they should set sales targets for the first year? We didn't. I made some really loose budgets, but I was really focused on the work and making sure everybody got paid would do some really basic maths to make sure, okay, that's got us through this month and took it very uh, organically. Yeah, because I just wanted to get some good work and I was happy to work on some charity jobs or uh, without being too concerned with the money at that stage. So what are the main challenges that people face when running their own studio? It's such a big step up for somebody like every other step in your career. You've gone from being an animator to 
an animation director or you may have stepped up one little level which requires one or two new skills as opposed to running a studio you've just got to level up across the board in all these areas that you don't even realize <laughs> so um, I think that is probably the biggest challenge is that you, you need to skill up quickly in a lot of different areas and it will call on uh, skills you've never even thought to develop. And what would be the main areas, say marketing or people management, what would be the main areas that you think are important to want to learn quickly? Definitely people management and pitching your work or pitching for jobs and getting on those calls with agencies and talking your ideas through. We've all done a little bit of that sort of thing. Yeah. I found it challenging to really stand by your work and your design and explain why you want to do it the way you want to do it. It's just so much more communication. A lot of us may have been on the tools for many years by the time we start a studio and really you're, you're kind of on a computer for a lot of your day. As a studio manager, you're constantly talking and walking around, communicating the, the process to everyone, all the different stages and all the different people. and and. Then there's, uh, you know, financially you need to get involved with accountants and lawyers and accounting software and yeah, you probably don't have an IT person the first month of operation, you know, it's, so you're, you're also networking computers and building render farms and hanging cables up. <laughs> it's a lot of skills. Not as scary as it sounds. I, I think that things just come up and then you've got to deal with that. And then, you know, you try and learn that as you go. That's what I found. Absolutely, yeah. I didn't mean to make it sound scary. It's a lot of fun. How important are contracts? How detailed are your contracts? And do you use a legal service? We do have uh, a contract per commercial job. We link it to the back of our quote and schedule and once they're approved, contract is also agreed to. And it's a fairly simple contract. Generally, Australia is not a super litigious kind of a place, like say the United States, you know, there's not a lot of people suing their clients, you know, that sort of thing going on. Yep. And you know, you can surprise clients with a really big contract. So, so we try and keep it simple and most important things on those, I guess, are, are something like your cancellation policy. Yep. Sometimes a job falls over and you need to have it written down what happens when that occurs. And I suppose the other thing might be if you're providing really distinct designs, especially like character designs, you might want to mention in the contract about how that's licensed. Are they allowed to use it for a year or two years yep. in Australia, New Zealand, or do they own it outright? It's good to have a, a bit of a discussion about that. It can be a grey area, that sort of copyright stuff. I think it's important to say what you own and what they own and who gets what. And it just needs to be clear. Yep. I had contracts from about year two till year seven, and I never really needed them. But it was always clear who got what. Uh, I think the, the best thing I found was what you were saying then, which is we had it set up so if they pay their first payment, they agree to the contract. Yep. Which I thought was a good way of doing it. Did you get a lawyer to do this or did you buy the contract or how did it work? We used a couple of different contracts that the producers we were working with had worked with in the past and also ones that I had from the UK and 
grabbed bits and pieces from different ones and built it and then ran it past a lawyer to make sure it looked okay. That's a good way to do it because then you understand exactly what you're saying to client. You know what's in your contract. I've kind of forgotten at the moment, but (laughs) when you do have a pretty good idea of what's in your contracts. And we do have a lawyer that we work with fairly regularly. She's an arts lawyer and because we were developing television series, we needed to do a lot of legals for that. There, the legals are very important. Yep. So you need to show that you own the project, that you have chain of title. We we were optioning some books for Bodasnakes and Gumbles that required legals to make sure we had the rights to develop it for a television series. Um, and then in the midst of making a show, you often need legal advice on those as to whether you know you can show like in the in the junkyard of Bodasnake, we had all different rusted cars, and we were like, "Does this look too much like a, a VW? Does this one look too much like this kind of car?" And we'd run it past legals to get their advice on how much we need to change stuff. It's very important on on the television. Well, that's really interesting. I'd never thought about that. I'd never thought about running legals past any of my projects. <laughs> uh, but I suppose TV shows on a much bigger scale, there's a lot more to go wrong. I suppose. Yep. What are some of the mistakes studio owners make when they are getting started and growing? It can be poor communication with your, your client. You can be a bit scared of them and have a us versus them attitude. Yeah. Prefer to work with clients and agencies as equals, you know, trying to achieve something together. And I think when you're starting out, you, you don't do that. You treat it as an us them. Yep. You can get upset about things when you do that when you don't actually say what you think back or feel like you can. And that can cause a bit of a bad vibe to the project. Yep. Yeah, that's what I would say is one mistake we made and people generally make as they're stepping into this world. I definitely had an us and them attitude when they were going over budget. Yeah. <laughs> and it was my weekends that were getting hammered. Absolutely. Wearing too many hats. You're often hands-on on the tools and you're just like... You're, you're not able to think creatively at all or offer solutions or anything because all you can think about is that's my weekend or I'm going to have to change all the stuff that I just did and took me hours. Whereas if <laughs> you're not hands-on on the tools, you're a little bit more, yeah, that, that, that a freelancer can change that stuff. That's so true. You're right. <laughs> and you're a little bit lighter with it. All righty. So freelancers, how do you think freelancers should market themselves? Show work you're proud of and that you want to do more of. Work hard on your portfolio because that's the main thing that people will look at. Keep your show real short and your best work. Aside from your portfolio, I think it's really important to be social, like, you know, build a community, whether an online one through friends on Instagram and Facebook and stuff, like, or for real, you can all help each other out. Your friends might be offered a job and they may need more people on it and get asked about it for contacts and then they'll get you onto the job. You know, and that networking and marketing is really important. And I think a lot of our, the crew that we work with are all hanging out, doing life drawing together, going to loop the loop and all that stuff. Yep. You know, that makes networking and marketing kind of fun and fulfilling for you. Like artistically, you've got peers and stuff you show stuff to and everyone's going, yeah, you're awesome. And, and work will follow that. Well, a lot of it comes through the people you work with and the people that you know with the networking, but how do they contact you? You know, What's the best way to contact you to try and show you your staff or to sell themselves? 
just writing a, a concise email with a link to your work is great. Like it, it's tried and true. From there, it's really just timing and luck as to whether we have a project that suits your skills on at the time. Do you think that they should try and call producers like once every few months? It's really nice to, to update, especially if you worked with us before. It's great to always be checking in and follow up after an email. What are the essential skills you need to work as a successful freelancer? You want people who communicate really well and are helpful, confident, to speak their mind. You're stepping into a new situation. You want to be able to speak up and be helpful and be part of the team as, as fast as possible. Professional, educated about business, being reliable and passionate and obviously having your skills at the level they need to be. You've got your soft gloves on. <laughs> 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 what about work hard? Work hard work and don't hard. have lunch. Yeah. Don't have lunch and just keep working. <laughs> yeah. I think I think all that's summed up in reliable. Just <laughs> make sure it's done on time. Uh, right? None of that Facebook. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's anyway. right. Any advice for freelancers on what not to do? If if we don't hire you, you know, don't write an angry email saying why didn't you? Do people do that? <laughs> We've had a few of those. That's an outrage. I know. You've, you've never had that? No, never. Uh, yeah? No. You know, there's a few little things like that where you can burn bridges, and I think you need to, um, <laughs> you need to think about whether you're not hired immediately, or you may be in the future, try and be friendly and nice. What TV, movies, music, magazines or books inspired you when you were growing up? Tons of stuff. Like I loved all sci-fi, fantasy, horror. I love comic books. I love all cartoons. Like I love Popeyes, any Spielberg, Lucas movies, The Muppets, the Walt Disney Afternoon, computer games. I got madly into you know the Atari Commodore sixty four. I used to get all those magazines for video games. I talked about graphics, addictability. Gave marks out of ten and. I would just soak up all pop culture that was imaginative. That Commodore 64 reference, nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it puts me right in my bedroom. <laughs> that was so good, uh, wasn't it? Those, uh, yeah. Well, I've got an Atari sitting behind me. Oh, really? One of the big black boxes. Oh, great. Yeah, I love the Atari as well. I bought an Atari for my kids, one of the redeveloped ones, and now I'm going to buy a Nintendo this year. They're getting the steps. Yeah, cool. I was at Supernova and there was a stall that just had vintage um, video game machines and cartridges and everything for sale, just hundreds and hundreds of them. I was like, wow, this is great. So if you could describe your career path, how did you start working in 3D and animation? There was a 3D course starting up, which was um, you know, the start of the AIE school, I think, in Canberra, was at the TAFE there. And anyway, she just enrolled me and said, you should do this now. <laughs> and, um, and I was like, okay. And walked in there and saw someone with an elf or goblin on their screen. And I was like, whoa, that is the best. And I sort of wanted to be a graphic designer um, and a comic artist. I loved indie comics, underground comics. We were making little zines with friends and telling stories with characters, doing character design. And, and, and then, yeah, the 3D course, after I finished that, I wanted the Toy Story type thing. That's what I was into. After that course, there was a company um, called BII, Brilliant Interactive Ideas, who was hiring 
loads of guys who finished the course to come up to Sydney. I was in Canberra before that, but anyway, come up to Sydney and yep. make these interactive, like, choose-your-own-adventure video games. Yep. Still, I wanted to do stuff that was rendered nicely and looked beautiful, and so I was applying f to work at... I, I got a job at Ambience Entertainment doing post, and there was a lot of character stuff happening there as well, but it was also a lot of car ads and broadcast design and stuff like that. Yeah. And still, I was chasing the, the character animation dream, and um, Kapow Pictures, I, I worked with them to create a short film called Show and Tell, and that was a fun little animated Tim Burton-esque film done to a, a, a cute rhyme written by Bradley Trevor Greaves here in Sydney. And that was really fun animation, and it went and won lots of awards and festivals, and then I took that film and moved to London to try and get a job in one of the awesome studios that I wanted to work in. What was it like moving to London? Great fun uh, in that we were travelling and had that, you know, traveller spirit of giving it a go. Yep. Um, but it was it was very expensive to live there and we didn't have many much uh, resources at that point. And, we were, you know, it was, it was very hard to get a job, I thought, harder than I thought. Yeah, I I was going. I was really uh, emailing everyone, calling in any contact I knew. I was dropping off uh, showreels at doors. I was I was knocking on, knocking on doors of studios that have never had their door knocked on before. It was it was uh, it was quite tricky. So my wife was working with an ad agency, and they suggested I apply to Nexus, and I got the job just by appearing at the right time when they needed to crew up for a 3D job. So it was just really good timing. At that stage, they didn't have an animation department as such. They used to hire a couple of 2D artists in and that sort of thing, but they didn't have a big studio. They used to send any 3D work out to post houses or to... They had a 3D company upstairs called Thinkbomb that they would send some stuff to, but we, we had to build it up from scratch. So getting a few more computers, IT guy joined, studio manager joined, render farm, and we, we sort of built up our core crew. What year did you start at Nexus and what year did you finish? I think I started at the end of 2001 and finished around 2007. It wasn't too long, it was like six or seven years. A lot happened in that time. What were the clients like and what were the projects like you were working on? Uh, for me, the projects were like the best, like even... Um, at that early stage, we were doing tons of music videos. We were doing um, opening titles for movies. Nexus, uh, we were just finishing up the Catch Me If You Can titles for DreamWorks. And um, on the back of that, I was animating that The Littlest Elf guy with uh, Smith and Folks were directing that. And, and that was an amazing project for DreamWorks as well. You know, Nexus got known... For, for doing all of these, this work and, and more and more of it. And so then they started getting quite high budget, um, like Honda ads and British Telecom ads and, and really good scripts, great animation, but also big budget. And how did your role change from when you first started to when you left? And what did the studio look like when you started and then when you left? Just to explain, I guess, Nexus uh, had a great creative director in Chris O'Reilly and, and a great EP in Charlotte uh, who, who kind of curated a really strong roster of directors. And they also had French and Japanese directors. 
and they really offered something very different and and so did the whole business expand it was more just the studio that expanded um, whilst I was there as I was saying there's only a couple of us at the beginning and then by the time I left we were putting freelancers everywhere I think we had to hire a studio across the road for a while we um, we had a, a core team of, of lead artists as well maybe you know six six leads or, or, or something like that we had a TD we had like maybe five you know five to ten jobs there was a lot of stuff going on it was very busy very exciting and a, a really good core team of 2D artists and 3D artists all working together. Just in the process of running the studio, what were the methods and processes that made the production of the work so successful? We had a good studio manager who would be um, hiring all the freelancers and just choosing the, the crew You know, was a big part of, the, of every job for me. I, I thought that that was key, but it was really... Um, that the team leads were friends and knew the directors really well and worked closely with them. And so working at Nexus was like a really good training ground for setting up your own studio? Yeah, I guess towards the end I started to want to be a director and I got a grant from Channel 4 over in the UK to make a little film. The film did well and that was the first film of Mighty Nice in some ways, because straight after I'd finished that, we were moving back to Australia and, and starting up our studio here. What led you to start Mighty Nice? Chris and Charlotte, the owners of Nexus, were just asking me what I was going to do once I got back to Australia. I said I'd like to start a studio. Just uh, It sounded like a, a good thing to say at the time, and, and I did like the idea of doing that. I hadn't planned very much at that point, and they said that they would like to get behind me to do that and partner with me. That really kicked it off. From there, it became a serious thing. Yep. And so I'm, I came back to Sydney and, and started planning to get the studio set up. And I worked as a freelancer around Sydney for a little while just to get a, a lay of the land, um, which was which was a really cool thing to do because I could go into other studios and sort of check out what they're doing and, um, get a, and meet lots of freelancers as well and, and sort of get my head back in the Sydney space. Yeah. And then just after a little bit, we set up Mighty Nice and Nexus helped us get off the ground in some ways. They sent a number of jobs to us from the studio in London to kind of get us rolling. Did they invest any money to get you started or was it just like sharing work arrangement? I think we just decided that we'd both like to start it more organically than pouring heaps of capital in. Yeah. We had a little bit of cash and um, just to get a, a couple of computers and get started. But yeah, we really wanted it to be run from jobs. And so then Nexus helping us with a few projects at the beginning um, did really help a lot. And that sort of was the capital that we started stuff on. And you guys are 50-50 partners? Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah, with Chris and Charlotte, not with Nexus themselves, but with the owners of Nexus are 50-50 and mighty nice. Cool. And what are the benefits of being in a partnership? The experience of your partners, for one, like having talks with Chris and Charlotte and asking advice and things has been hugely beneficial over, over the years. And the, the other benefits are, are having a whole studio over there on the other side of the world who can uh, support us or offer technical advice or you know, help us with a bit of design or modeling and that sort of thing should we, should we need it. Yeah. The biggest thing is that Nexus represent Mighty Nice as a director. 
Yep. And they pitch our work around and help us get jobs rolling um, and produce them from London and from the US for us. So do you think that studios in Australia should be represented overseas? It's definitely fantastic to have that opportunity to pitch your stuff internationally and it really pushes you to work at an international level. You also can spend a lot of money pitching against some of the best people in the world <laughs> and never winning because you're on the other side of the, the planet and at a certain point that can become an issue for some clients. They want someone local. You really want your work to be at a level where you're competitive internationally before you start seeking representation internationally. And how does it compare working in London to working in Sydney in regards to quality of work and budgets and timelines? London has a different culture, I suppose, in that you might get a, a TV ad, say I mentioned Honda before, where they have a very big budget for it. And I, I feel like in Australia, that would, might be automatically a big live action spot. In the UK, they may think of this differently and think a high-end animation could really stand out and be the thing we need to do. I don't see that happening as often here in Australia. Animation is sometimes seen as what you do if you don't have enough budget, as opposed to, you know, the other way around on something like that. That's an interesting way of looking at it. But what about the more obvious differences? Because the UK is a much bigger market than Sydney, there's much more work going around, there's more variety of work, there's more freedom in the work, so you often find that the scripts and the budgets are bigger, the scripts are better, and that's just the climate. But um, as we've seen, Australian ad agencies and New Zealand ad agencies and things, they're winning some of the best creative awards because of some of the work that they're doing within limitations. And that can push creativity as well. So we've done some great work here in Sydney, I think. So it, it's not cut and dry, better in London, worse in Sydney. It's just a little bit different in the way you approach things. Have you had any failures in your career? And what have you learned from them? We had a massive server crash once and, and everything went down and we were in the middle of a number of jobs and had to go and like pay something like $15,000 to get the drives restored urgently overnight. And so that was horrible. <laughs> that was the worst experience. And after that, we, um, we set up really, really good backup systems. So that will never happen again. <laughs> Any other lessons you've learned? I guess burning some bridges with clients. I think sometimes we took a really hard stance on some design or not worked with them on a pitch or a treatment well enough to get to where they wanted to get to and found that just because we thought we've pitched, this is what we think is good, we're going to stand by it, that in the end was not the best way to build a new relationship or ongoing work with somebody. So yeah, there's a few little things like that that I look back and go, man, we were, we were a bit cocky on that one. We should have just like tried to work, work with them a bit more. So what's the hardest thing you had to learn to progress your career? The hardest thing to progress our studio, I think, has been to reduce in size after we did the TV series. That's been a big challenge was to go, okay, we don't actually have two budgets for TV series anymore. We've got too many staff and we're not 
profitable at all, and we're, we're <laughs> you know we're in a bit of trouble. And so to make the studio a bit smaller again was quite a hard thing to do. I hadn't ever had to face that until that point. So that was a tricky learning curve to um, let some people go to make some big changes. It really gives you empathy. For me, I found a lot of empathy in both as for myself as an owner who had to do bad things like that and empathy for the people who were going through it. Yeah, absolutely. Is it, everything's great when you're doing really well and, and that you're in the sweet spot, but then when, it, <laughs> when it's on the edge, it's, everything gets very hard. That's something, it's very hard to teach, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you just have to go through that and figure it out. <laughs> Do you think that pipelines are important in regards to profitability and the way the projects are managed and run? Uh, yes, definitely. The schedule of work in progresses that you're delivering, the number of internal meetings you have, all of that kind of thing can affect things. Internal reviews, yeah. you, you may choose to review a project too often and give too much feedback, <laughs> which reduces your profitability. Every, everybody sort of suffers from the art of perfection, but let's now move on to your technical pipeline. Your technical pipeline can affect things a lot in that you want uh, renders to come back quickly. You want um, people not to be messing around trying to find files for too long. It's just efficiencies, small efficiencies all add up to a big efficiency. And do you put a, a big emphasis on building your pipeline and making it smooth? There's always tools being written here, little ones to help. I've got a bit of a wiki page that you, if you log in as a freelancer, it tells you all of the info. If you're a modeler, go to that page. If you're animated, go to that page. It gives you a whole lot of info on how to work with our pipeline um, and how to work on our server. All of that stuff, you know, it, it adds up. And the, the people asking for jobs to be done so much faster and shorter schedules and things, you don't want to stuff it up because you've got a bad pipeline. <laughs> and just your hardware and software, and, and do you render in the cloud or do you render locally? A bit of both. We've got 40 machines in the building that we can render on. Yep. Some of those are workstations, of course. but uh, And then we work with the, the Amazon uh, Render Cloud and we put in a bit of work pipeline-wise into making that part of our process and making that as smooth and efficient as possible. How about your uploading? I think we've got a direct kind of fiber line to Amazon or something like that. What renderer are you using and what sort of software do you use to do the production? Do you do any TV paint work or stuff like that? Yeah, we do. We've got a variety of 2D animation softwares we use. TV paint is kind of used a lot. Um, we, we sometimes mix that with a bit of Photoshop animation as well. And then we use uh, Animate or Flash um, on some projects that are a bit more clean and graphic looking. We nearly always use After Effects for some part of the process. 3D-wise, uh, we started the studio using 3D Studio Max, but have since swapped over to using Maya. But we still sometimes run a job in Max. And we've got both pipelines working and can have a team working in Max and in Maya at the same time and then comp in Nuke, usually for 3D projects. So wow. all desktop-based. You know, we got color grading, resolve suite, and a little edit suite, and things like that as well. But mainly, we work on the desktops. And your renderers? V-Ray. Cool. How do you keep a consistent quality of work across multiple projects of different sizes and different budgets? 
Again, it starts with choosing the right team of artists to be on that project. That makes such a big difference that you've got the perfect crew. But then, you know, working with the client to make the project manageable for the budget, um, you can directly affect the quality early on in a project just by, you know, making a few simple decisions up front. You know, let's have one set instead of two sets or let's reduce the number of characters in this. A variety of things like that. They don't necessarily have to make the storytelling or the project any worse. They're just things that will allow us to focus the quality in the right places. And then, you know, our daily meetings, the dailies, they keep everyone on track and you kind of review stuff and push the quality at every point. So that's all of those things, communication with client, um, the right team and daily communication with your team is what works. How do you meet the client's expectations without blowing the budget? <laughs> Again, yes, sometimes we don't. <laughs> sometimes we blow the budget. Obviously, we, we work very hard to get it on budget. Expectations are very high and budgets are smaller. Yep. Again, constant communication with the client to drive that approval process and keep, it, keep the job in check. You know, remind client that that artwork has been approved or the storyboards are approved. And from here, this might incur extra costs if you want to change that. Do you really want to change it? <laughs> you know, it's a bit of an ongoing uh, bit of communication to make sure things don't blow out because, you know, nobody really wants that. Client doesn't want to leave you um, suffering at the end of a job and you, everyone wants to achieve a really high-end project. So the only way you can do that is by saying that request is going to cost more and cause problems for production. So you need to just speak up early, have a good producer who will do that. How do you get bigger budgets from clients? You want to do work that you want to continue doing. So I guess if you start being seen as the guys who do the cheap stuff, you will get lower budgets. You have to be careful in the kind of work you accept. I mean, everyone does work that isn't on their reel to pay the bills occasionally, but I think you have to be careful with doing that. You can undermine your quality of your, your product in some ways or the way people think of you. Yep. That's how you'll get a better budget is by building up a short portfolio of really good quality work. Then the next person who comes will go, hey, they look like, you know, they can handle this and I'll give them a bigger budget. So now I want to talk about your broadcast television work, which a lot of people think is really great. Thanks. If you could tell us a little bit about the two series you've completed and what's coming up next. Started as a commercial short form animation studio and we stepped into this world of kids TV. It was mainly based on initially developing Butter Snakes and Gumballs. So this was something we did in our downtime in the studio. We optioned the rights to the book, which was a favorite book of mine that I loved as a kid. And, you know, it was a very personal project at first, just wanting to build this world and, and get across how we imagined it. I had no idea how to pitch or or get a TV show off the ground, <laughs> but I knew how to make it look nice and, and get that happening. Um, we partnered with Cheeky Little to get that uh, rolling properly because those guys had a lot of experience and were very good at getting it to the next level. But, you know, I met with the author and illustrator of Bottle Snakes. It was very, as a project close to my heart. I loved it as a kid and it was it was great fun to develop that and get that back 
I mean, we, the, the books are published again. It's fantastic. And the show was successful. It's a, it's a cool, really, really great experience to direct that much television and work with writers and voice talent and all the rest was incredible. Yep. And then Kazoops was initially developed by a musician friend of mine, Scott Langley and, and Tone Aston, and we got involved to create visuals to help pitch it and help develop it further. And again, we partnered with Cheeky Little on that to get that off the ground. It's really a big collaboration and a bit of a family passion project. You know, my wife and I work together softly. She's very into um, up shopping and vintage clothes and all of this kind of stuff and really put her stamp on the Kazoops family. And we love developing these shows. Like it's really good fun and something that we'll continue to do. And, and so how many episodes have you completed and uh, what were the durations of uh, both the shows? Bot of Snakes and Gumballs was 52 11-minute episodes and Kazoops was 72, I think, seven-minute episodes. Bot of Snakes more involved all the way to the end. Our studio was working on a variety of parts of the process. Um, Kazoops, we were mainly on art direction and initially setting up the project and less involved in the full 72 episodes. So, Well, out of all the stuff that you've done, this is the thing that I think is most impressive. Like the idea of doing your own TV show on this sort of scale, you know, you'd really want to do that. But how you actually do that, yeah, it's beyond me. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? I mean, we were very lucky to partner with um, Cheeky Little who had a good reputation and then it's insanely lucky for everyone to even get two TV series off the ground at the same time. It was madness. How do you like go through the process of like buying the rights for the book, optioning the book? And was that an expensive thing? It's a fairly established process and you just talk to an arts lawyer about doing that and need to get in contact, you know, usually with the book's publisher and they will manage that process. The cost varies. It depends on what the property is. It can be quite cheap. Some authors are happy to give the option at a low cost because they love the company's involvement and they love the idea of it getting off the ground. And then they get paid once it goes into production. And that's part of the optioning contract. I guess the, the, the trickiest bit of the process is you need to kind of put the whole deal in place. So if when it goes to production, what happens? When it goes to season two, what happens? Who maintains ownership of this and this? And is there merchandising involved? Is it, all of this stuff needs to be sorted out right at the beginning. And it seems so far away at that stage. <laughs> Are they on air at the moment? Where can people view them? The Kazoops is on the ABC and Bottle Snakes is also on the ABC, I think, at the moment. Both are on Netflix, so they can be seen there. And Bottle Snakes was a, initially a Channel 7 production. Yeah, yeah. well, it's amazing. Like, uh, I've watched them all repetitively uh, with my little kids, so... Oh, great. <laughs> it's like they play them every day at one stage. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, the process of animating to mastering, uh, if you could... Sort of tell us, uh, like, how does one app sort of be made? Script development is the first step, and there's multiple writers writing different episodes. In is the way we had it running, with a um, head of story um, kind of overseeing that process and guiding all of that, and then 
BBC and ABC all review scripts and we also as directors review scripts and give feedback and so you lock the script, record the voices in chunks, so maybe you do 10 scripts at a time, there's multiple recording sessions across the year. Yep. Quite often you, you might even start storyboarding a little bit before you have the voice but then you, you get an edit of the audio to length and the storyboard artist listens to that as they're storyboarding. Now, the storyboard artists are a key to this world of production in that you're animating overseas and the storyboard needs to convey so much information. You might be, quite often it's going to a non-English speaking country and the storyboard becomes the template for everything. So even the expressions on the characters' faces, where they're standing, the layout of the room, all of this stuff, it's a very functional board <laughs> and detailed and so that is then edited by editors who are working kind of non-stop continually updating and editing and reworking the editing process that was happening in cheeky little yeah we split stuff across our studios so in our studio we were creating assets and doing all the art direction stuff, so making design packs and things like that, and directing, and we had an animation director reviewing animation and the lighting director kind of reviewing the lighting and things as it went. Um, but then Cheeky Little were doing storyboards and the editing process over there. So yeah, it was, yeah, it was a really good split. I'd be traveling to Manly and back each day to do that. So when you finish the edit, what's next? After we get a really tight edit, we send off um, that episode as an animatic. It gets all broken up into pieces, uploaded into Shotgun, and uh, the studio that we were working with overseas all receive their shots and episodes and start animating using the assets we've provided to create shots, and then they're uploading back to us to review the animation and the lighting and rendering, and we're doing a lot of drawovers, and sometimes we were pulling shots back to our studio here and reanimating them, that type of thing. Anything we can do to communicate and push the quality of the show harder and harder to make it better and better. And then finally, um, we would receive all of the shots rendered, and through Shotgun, it would all put, be putting it all together. We'd do a fine cut of the final animation and a final grade here in Sydney, then master and deliver. Shotgun's a, a management tool, yeah? Yes, yeah. Shotgun's a widely used management tool in VFX and, and television production. What were the biggest challenges you have to overcome when you're doing series work? Firstly, the speed of it was absolutely it gets signed off and then you need to start the next day and have assets delivered in three months for a whole series. It was very, very fast in the initial development stage. I didn't quite realize how quickly that was going to happen. I thought we'd get a little bit of time to do tons of artwork and really develop it carefully, but it was lightning fast. You were just like, okay, design the characters, <laughs> start modeling, build this. It's really a quick pace to it. And then again, once you're into episodic design and the point after your pre-production time when you're um, just back-to-back -back episodes, that again is very fast. There's like the schedule is, it takes up a whole wall. It's a matrix of overlapping colorful lines that mark out three days for this, two days for that, 
and it's back to back and you need stamina to maintain the love of it. Did you ever get like massively behind? Yes, yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> it, it's hard to, I think most series struggle to hit the hopeful schedule. There's always something will go wrong and they're very tight. You fall behind and then you catch up again and you fall behind and then you have to trust that somewhere down the line you're going you're gonna to catch some luck and it's going to go faster. <laughs> and with your outsourcing overseas, what were the challenges in that process? We did bottle snakes through China and India across a number of different studios. And I think that was probably the biggest challenge there is that it was multiple studios. I think we had a much better time with Kazoops being to the singular studio. And it's just communication and briefing everyone. There's also the challenge that we're non-English speakers, a lot of the animators and things. So if your notes were too long or your briefing documents were too verbose, they, they wouldn't get read. So it, there, there were a lot of challenges in making sure people had the right assets, the right bits and pieces and all of this kind of stuff. It's a bit of a logistical headache. The speed of it doesn't make that any better because it takes a while to realize that there's a problem. And if you were to do it again, what would you do different with the overseas outsourcing? Much like I was saying about choosing a crew for a job, the crew you choose equals the, the quality of the production. And I think um, on Bottle Snakes, we weren't sure which, you know, there were multiple studios and it was hard to, there, there was a variety in quality levels and the worst episodes would take up a lot of your time. So I think just trying to have more say on that of who exactly it's going to and, and what the team is and things like that. You just need to get a bit more involved. Even though you're super busy in other things, you just need to be as involved as possible in that process. And did they send you back the files after you were finished, all the working production files? And did you find they were in good order and well organized? They weren't too bad. It, it's a big process. A lot of props are created and a lot of objects are created every episode, but yeah, it was fine. Was there anything, one thing that you learned in that process uh, that you thought was important? Much like I was saying, as a studio, you need to find where you fit in. We kind of figured out what we like doing most on TV series production and what our strengths are and not to take on too much for our studio, I think. It, it, was, it was quite hard because two shows at the same time was, was a challenge. But I think we've learned that we are very good at, at the design and the direction and the art direction of things, and we should focus our skills on that area. I'm now going to move on to talk about commercials. Yes, yep. Which is, a, which is the biggest part of your business, I would imagine. Yes, yep. At the moment, yep. absolutely, yeah. Okay. So what do you love most about working in advertising and making commercials? Definitely the variety of work. Everything is a new look and a new style and a new vibe. Yep. Something that you you might not make off your own bat. You're asked, you're given briefs that are interesting and you're like, I've never, I would <laughs> never think to make a film like this, but it's exciting to get that sort of variety and jump into whole new looks and new vibes. This is really why I wanted to ask that question. Um, <laughs> what are the worst things about working in commercials? Going over time and over budget and, and the, the balance of quality versus productivity versus profitability and all of that sort of stuff is such a balance to make and it can be hard. When things are going a bit pear-shaped, that's a horrible feeling. And 
you know, you're a commercial studio, you need to be delivering. So you need to step up and, and, and fix it. <laughs> and, and so the pressure is, is quite intense in a commercial environment. You have to deliver on that date. There's no shifting that deadline, you know? The World Cup is starting or... <laughs> you know, we did Vivid recently. Vivid is switching on at 6pm on that date. It's ridiculous. Like I've worked on three Olympics and two World Cups. <laughs> why do they start so late? Do you know what I'm saying? Why so yeah. late? Why not? I never understood that. Like, why wait until there's only four weeks to go and an unshiftable deadline to get really cracking? Absolutely. I mean, when you're up against the deadline and you're not achieving the quality that you want, that would be the worst thing about creating commercials, I think. That's the thing that bothers me the most. So I want to talk about one of your projects now, uh, Square Peg. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so Square Peg is a web animation, kind of like an explainer movie, I guess, but a little bit more high-end little film for the web. It goes for two minutes and it needed to communicate what the company Sprinkler in the US did for its clients. <laughs> what was that? Sprinkler managed social media for large companies and... So what was the client trying to explain? What they wanted from us was a beautiful animation that was quite whimsical and told story of when a company grows too big and it's, it loses touch with its consumer and it, it stops listening, figures it out again and figures out how to save their company. So were you writing the script and what was the duration? They really came to us to create this two-minute film and they wanted us to help write that. It was non-verbal, so everything had to happen with visuals. Um, and it's a very complicated company, and what it does is tricky to get across. So it was a um, super challenging process, involved writing, storyboarding, and making this little film working closely with the agency. It was really good fun. And what was the budget, and did you have to go through a pitching process to get this project? So it was a pitching process. We were pitching against a number of other companies and had to put in a visual treatment. Yeah. It had a good budget for a web film, definitely. It was at the higher end of ones that we usually see for any kind of explainer movie. But that said, we did push for a very high-end look where everything was rendered in 3D and we kind of pushed that budget as well. And how many people worked on the project and how many weeks did it run for? Oh, wow, we, we had a really big team on Sprinkler. I'd say there was about 15, 20 people on it. And we worked on it for about 12 weeks, I think. So if you could explain the process. Client had a script pretty much laid out exactly what is in the final film to an extent. It was a non-verbal film, and so the storyboarding process became really critical. We needed to communicate everything in the storyboard. I was putting together these little narrative documents where I would write a visual narrative. So beyond the script, kind of describe every shot, what I thought was going to happen, alongside storyboards scattered amongst that that would visually explain that too. It was a slightly faster way than storyboarding the whole film. I could just write some bits, storyboard some bits, write some more, storyboard some more. And that was a good way. And we back and forth that document for a number of weeks until we got it really refined. And at that point, we storyboarded the whole film and made an animatic. 
And how close do you think your storyboards and animatic were to your end piece? Uh, they were very close. We did a fine cut at the end where we trimmed out about 20 seconds to make it a little bit snappier. The thing with nonverbal stuff is it's nice when you're along for the ride, but you can start thinking about other things halfway through. <laughs> so a beautiful, dreamy film. Um, so we wanted it to be changing more quickly, so we did tighten it up a bit. It seemed like a bit of a challenge to tell that story about they're like little toy figures putting a square peg in a circle hole. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. How, how did you keep the narrative going? What were your ideas when you were writing to keep people interested? Originally, it was just the woman and the man, and we kind of included the little dog character. That was quite a fun little twist in that he dug a circular hole that needed filling at one point. So it was all, it was all about trying to figure out the needs a little community could have that required simple geometry, <laughs> which was kind of a bit tricky, you know? You're sort of like, oh, I guess a, 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 the wall needs a brick. That's good. Um, the filling in the dog's hole so you don't fall in it, that's good. We tossed around tons of ideas for that stuff and that was a little bit tricky just to get the right feel to that. And what was the hardest part of the process? For me, it was that part of the process, locking down all of those ideas in the script and making sure it communicated what Sprinkler wanted and what the agency wanted. That was very hard. Uh, establishing the final look of the film was pretty tricky too. It's sort of uh, that isometric half 3D world. You'd kind of flatten things, but we're still trying to grade it like it was a, a real bit of VFX. <laughs> so that required a lot more work to make look nice than I originally thought. The character development process, did you guys develop all the characters? We worked with this brilliant illustrator, Robin Davey. He's known for a really distinct style, a sort of minimalist ge geometric style. 2D and sort of guy, yeah? Yeah, 2D guy. Yep. But yeah, I think he worked on Hey Dougie, yep. that animated TV show. Great show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how did you change his 2D? So what was the process in changing his 2D to 3D? When we were originally pitching it, we offered a number of alternative looks. Um, we were sort of going, okay, 2D characters with 3D backgrounds, all 2D, or all 3D, um, all based on Robin's designs. And I think because we'd briefed him to work in this geometric style to, to help the story, it's all about the square pegs and things, his designs translated pretty well into simple 3D geometry. So a circle to a sphere, you know, square to a cube and things. So yeah, it worked well. Cool, was there a decision to go for 3D, a budgetary decision? Like you would have had to charge more to do it in 3D, I would imagine, and did the budget come into it for the agency or the company? It came into it for us. We were worried about the budget to achieve it, and it was difficult to achieve for budget. If we'd stayed 2D, we would have had an easier time of it. And were you happy with it? Yeah, yeah, I was really happy with it. I felt like those initial challenges of trying to tell a story with simple geometry and get this difficult thing across, I was really happy to have seen that process all the way through and to have achieved what I was hoping for. Cool. The software that you used in the 3D renderer? Yeah, so we used 3D Studio Max for that project and renderer was V-Ray renderer and we comped it all in After Effects. Where do you look for inspiration? Other people are inspiring, like other animators and, and directors are, are 
particularly inspiring to me. And it's so easy to get inspiration and reference now. Uh, I think you just need to focus that. <laughs> That's the harder bit. It's just everywhere. There's so much TV and stuff. It's crazy. Like, Well, I find that the internet is like super inspiring, but it's, it's sort of it's nailing what you want to look at and deciding what you want to ask it is really the hard part. That's and a it, skill. If you, if you get the question right, you'll get good answers. Uh, but then when you're trying to sort of brainstorm, you don't want to ask specific questions. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's a new skill that people are going to have to develop because there's just so much knowledge. It's, a, it's like uh, yeah. referencing and finding inspiration on the internet techniques and that. And I imagine that it will evolve and get better over the next 10 years. Yep. People still need to go out for a walk and listen to some music or, you know, have a long shower and, and think up some ideas and kind of envisage stuff as well. You know, that's, that's where I sometimes get inspired to change an ad or change, change an animation. I'll just be off having a walk and go, that's it. That's the thing. <laughs> well, the yeah. thing is, is that subconsciously your mind's working on it. So if you work on it really hard and then you stop thinking about it, your mind's still working on it. And then suddenly that pop in a moment is just what you were trying to do earlier. Yeah, yeah. Giving your brain some time to crunch the numbers, figure it out. <laughs> but you're the third person to say in the shower. Which yeah. <laughs> from now on, I'm just going to have long showers when I've got a problem. Yep. All right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. What projects are you working on now? And what would you like to work on in the future? We did really love developing the television shows and it's not necessarily just kids TV, but we like the idea of developing some long form and are working on a couple at the moment. Marmalade yep. is based on some books and a TV show by Andrew Davies, who made House of Cards and wrote Bridget Jones's diary yep. movies. He's very well known in the UK and the show was a cool little uh, young ones vibe for kids it was a little punk girl and it was a live action show and we we're looking to change that into animation and get a series off the ground yep some vr and ar installations we're hoping to develop more of an interactive side to the company yep. as i've said I, I do love creating commercials and short form stuff because of the variety and that helps inspire our long form development Hoping to develop some long form work more in interactive and continue our commercials one day make another short film be fun too. That's a great place to finish it. I really did enjoy the chat and thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us today. No worries, Matt. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a great thing you're doing with Masters of Motion and really happy to be a part of it. If you like this podcast, it'd be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. Or you can come find Matthew Packwood on Facebook where I post everything you need to know about Masters of Motion. You can also check out Masters of Motion's gallery on Instagram. You can find out more about Darren Price at mightynice.com.au. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week. Bye-bye.